Welcome to the Awesome Pod Mix. You're listening to Abby. A reputed filmmaker once said, when a piece of art invokes a similar feeling amidst a large audience, it's the triumph of the filmmaker. That's the magic of cinema. I love the magic of a good story. Awesome Pod Mix was conceived so that I could focus on how certain movies and TV shows made me feel when I watched them for the very first time. Today, I'll be discussing the first episode of Marvel Studios' Moon Knight. Whether Marvel creates movies or TV shows, they are all cinematic. This episode's title is The Goldfish Problem, written by Jeremy Slatter and directed by Mohammed Diab. It's the second series in the MCU to have a Kevin Feige production in the credits after Hawkeye. The very first scene begins with an extreme close-up of a pair of hands sporting wristbands on both wrists and placing a cloth on the table. From the wristbands, I know this is Arthur Harrow, played by Ethan Hawke. The song playing in the background is Bob Dylan's Every Grain of Sand. The man puts his arms palm side up on the laid out fabric. We see the croc head scales tattoo on his right arm. His croc head cane, croc style sandals and a jug filled with water are on his right and on his left there is an empty glass. Arthur clenches his fists and then brushes his hands on the laid out fabric. He picks up the jug, pours water into the glass, filling it half. He inserts his finger into the glass of water, dabs it around the rim of the glass with residual drops. We don't see his face yet, but the entire production design of this scene has crocodile theme elements as this character's signature. He picks up the glass, drinks the water, and now we see him in his profile. It seems as if he's performing some ritual. When he finishes drinking the water, he places the glass upside down and folds the fabric over the glass. Arthur picks up his crockhead cane and smashes the glass to smithereens with just one hit, as if Arthur never wrapped the glass with the fabric. Arthur opens the folded fabric and removes the shards of the glass and puts them in his croc-style sandals. He spreads them evenly. We see the shot of his bare feet as he's about to put the glass-filled croc-style sandals. Arthur tiptoes a bit. He gets up from the chair and picks up his cane and walks ahead. We can hear the sound of the broken glass against his feet every time he walks on screen. It's a bone-chilling scene with some very disturbing imagery. If a man is not scared to torture himself, that means he's very dangerous. If he can inflict this kind of torture upon himself, imagine what sort of torture would he inflict upon his enemies. The location where Arthur Harrow's introduction is taking place is the same place as shown in the featurette. I think Arthur was performing a ritual because he failed in his mission and this was his way to correct that. Props to the writer Jeremy Slatter for writing such a scene. Without a line of dialogue, he's established the degree to which this character would go and the craziness this character can pull off. Marvel Studios' title sequence begins over the song A Man Without Love by Engelbert Humperdinck. One significant change is the addition of Eternals in the same spot where Hulk from Ragnarok used to appear. Introduction of Steven asleep with his eyes moving rapidly under the eyelids. He wakes up from his sleep. We see a solved Rubik's Cube lying on his nightstand. Steven looks around confused, removes the covers, finds his ankle strained, tied to a wooden post with the help of a four-digit numeric cable bike lock. He pulls the restraint to check the grip and frees himself. As he gets down from his bed, we see a ring of sand around his bed. Usually, a salt circle is used to ward off the evil. He walks on the sand circle, leaving one footprint. 
He checks the intact seal of blue tape on the door. He removes the tape, crushes it into a ball to throw it in the bin. Stephen calls his mother and leaves a voicemail. I think there is no mother. I know he says she sent him postcards, but I think it's the other identity that leaves them at the apartment. He addresses his fish Gus as the one-finned wonder, which is a reference to Nemo from the Pixar movie Finding Nemo. Gus's aquarium is decorated with Egyptian artifacts. Over the phone, Stephen, speaking to his mother, says that whenever he wakes up, he feels like he's been hit by a bus. I think he was hit by a bus the night before. Stephen is super nice, even to the hawker outside his building blocking his entrance. Toward the end of the phone call with his mother, Stephen says, Later, Gators! The bus arrives and Stephen rushes to catch it. He's tired, so he dozes off standing inside the bus. We see the museum reflection in the puddle on the street as Stephen walks up to the museum. A little girl trashes candy wrapper inside the scale model of a pyramid hole at the ancient Egypt museum exhibit. Stephen spots that and initiates a conversation. Stephen says, it looks like someone mistook the Pyramid of Giza as a rubbish dump. To which the girl responds, it's not like there's anything there. And Stephen says, yeah, maybe. Then he points to another exhibit and says, but in there, there's something wicked. Check it out. Saying this, he removes the candy wrapper from the scale model and walks to the wicked thing that he wants to show. This scene is testament to the fact that Stephen is an extremely caring person. The smallest of things matter to him. Stephen tells the little girl, they take a big metal hook and go up your nozzle to remove all the organs except the heart. The girl is curious to know why. Stephen says, they believed you needed your heart to be judged in the underworld and only the worthiest will be allowed to pass through the field of reeds. The little girl says, and did it suck for you getting rejected from the field of reeds? I think this is foreshadowing. When the past events would be revealed in a flashback, we'll see the connection. Either Stephen was rejected or Stephen doesn't have a heart. Stephen even says, that doesn't make sense because I'm not dead, am I? There is a high probability that Stephen died and was resurrected by Konshu. Donna reprimands Stephen for engaging in a conversation with the visitor as he's not a tour guide. Stephen is supposed to be a gift shopist at the museum. Dylan, a tour guide, approaches Stephen asking him how the sugar trade is going. Stephen questions the authenticity of the candies as back in the day, the people of Egypt didn't have candies as they only liked figs and dates, Dylan, the tour guide woman, reminds Stephen he has a date with her tomorrow, Friday at 7, at the steakhouse. Stephen thinks Dylan is asking him out. Dylan thinks Stephen is being funny. Maybe his other personality asked the woman out. Slipping fruit dates into conversation to link a romantic date? I would say not bad. Not bad at all. Donna overhears this and she's definitely not thrilled. She sarcastically comments as to what would a vegan eat at a steakhouse. Stephen says, I don't know, salad, bread. If you observe closely, you would realize that this shot is flipped because Stephen's messy hair is directed toward the right of the frame and not the left of the frame like it was in the previous shot. Donna can't resist making a mean comment. Even this shot is flipped. Donna's hair parting was on the left of the frame and in this shot, it's on the right of the frame. In the storeroom, we see Donna doing the inventory. 
She asks Stephen to bring the carton filled with hippo plushies to the counter. He corrects her saying, it's Tavaret, goddess Tavaret. She is the protective ancient Egyptian goddess of childbirth and fertility. Stephen informs her that there has been a major blunder on the banners outside and on the Inuit posters. The super group of Egyptian gods, Horus, Horus, Tefnat, Donna cuts him off. Inuit is a group of nine deities in Egyptian mythology worshipped at Heliopolis. Sun god, Atom, his children, Shu and Tefnut, their children, Geb and Nut, and their children, Osiris, Isis, Set and Nephthys. The Inuit sometimes includes the son of Osiris and Isis, Horus as well. On the poster, only seven are featured and Donna says she fired the two for being late. Stephen has been late for the last three days. This is Donna's way of suggesting she'll fire him too, but she's just assigning him inventory duties for now. Donna mistakes Stephen's corrections as auditioning for a tour guide. She threatens him saying, if you don't stop nattering at me, I'll shove you in a sack of pickles and you can tell a pharaoh what's wrong with them. Donna asks him to leave. Stephen is still kind and says, all right, always lovely to chat. We see Stephen pass through a postcard stand and to the security guy named JB who calls him Scotty. Jeremy Slatter, the head writer of the show, took to Twitter revealing JB Ballard is actually a PA on the show and now a script coordinator slash writer on the series X-Men 97. In the next scene, we see Steven eating a roll and discussing his sleeping disorder with a golden pantomime. The mime doesn't say a thing, but Steven says there are stranger things that people do. Yes, Steven. Indeed, there are. Just like talking to a pantomime, he donates extra pralines in the mime's basket. Steven tells him that he has a date tomorrow and doesn't know how that happened. He further discusses that if he manages to have a girlfriend at some point, he can't have ankle restraints on his bed. That's the definition of a red flag. Steven thinks he has a sleepwalking problem. He is not aware that he has disassociative identity disorder. He wants assurance from the mime guy. Since the mime cannot speak, Steven assures himself that the pantomime understands his dilemma and Steven will figure out a way. This is similar to the phone call with Steven's mom, where Steven leaves her voicemails, but there is no response from the other side. Steven says, I better jog on. It was nice catching up. He gets up to leave and says, I will see you on the flip-flop. Over the word flip-flop, we cut to a beautiful shot with a reflection. Steven bends to put the donation in the basket. A leaf goes from down to up, lands on water, creating a ripple effect. I feel someone is watching Steven from the underworld. Many people think that the shot is upside down, but I beg to differ. The framing and composition of the master shot and the flip bloody shot on top is exactly the same. The leaf falling from down to up makes us believe that it's an upside down shot, but I don't think that is the case. This is my favorite shot in the show. I want to ask Gregory Middleton, the cinematographer on this episode, how he managed this. I'm sure a certain part of it is VFX, but it is beautifully composed. We see the shot of the sand grains falling as Stephen fills up the footprint on the ring of sand in his room. He picks up the blue tape, seals it, bolts the door. He straps on his ankle restraint and focus shifts on the four-digit number code by clock. Notice that Stephen is wearing a white t-shirt and grey track pants. This is important and I'll tell you why in a minute. A woman AI voice pours in. Hello and welcome to Staying Awake. Stephen is fiddling with a Rubik's cube in one hand and then he uses both his hands to solve the cube. The AI voice says, 
Let's start with trying to solve a puzzle. Solving puzzles is a great way to keep your mind awake. Bored of puzzles? Try a book. When she says try a book, we see Stephen in a green shirt placing a bunch of books on the table. Stephen wears his reading glass and the voice continues. This is the same shirt we saw him wearing the first day to work. Reading can keep your mind alert and focused. Imagine being in a story you are reading. Is there an exciting chapter you'd like to be a part of? Just then we see the chapter in the book is of the Inuit, which Stephen spoke about at the scene in the museum. The AI says, just remember, you'll need about five hours to keep your natural self. The VO starts all over again with hello and we see Stephen playing with the Rubik's Cube in a white t-shirt. When he's reading the books, he's wearing the green shirt. We see the various gods' names and figures. Stephen is holding a highlighter and the subheader on the Inuit title reads, Rift between man and god and it is highlighted. The AI starts all over again from the beginning with hello and we see Stephen making some notes. From here on over the shot of Stephen playing with the Rubik's Cube, the AI voice overlaps. Stephen tosses the Rubik's Cube in the air to catch but it transitions to a close-up of Stephen in a brown jacket and a white hoodie lying face smacked to the ground. As per my estimate, the AI speaks three times from the very beginning. Each costume change means a different day. It is difficult to point out here as it could be a montage, but I'll go with my gut and say three different days. Steven wakes up wincing in pain and we see his jaw visibly dislocated. He pops the jaw to set it back in place. He's wearing a blue t-shirt along with a hoodie and a jacket. Steven finds himself standing in an open field in the Alps. We hear a man's voice. Go back to sleep, worm. This voice is of actor F. Murray Abraham. Stevie wonders where this voice is coming from. The man says, you're not supposed to be here. Stephen agrees. Yes, I completely agree. Where are you? The man says, surrender the body to Mark. Stephen is like, sorry, what? The body? What? Surrender the body? What body? The man says, oh, the idiot's in control. Stephen checks his pocket and finds a golden scarab. Scarabs were impression seals in ancient Egypt. Stephen feels a presence and we see Konshu approaching him from behind. Stephen turns to look but there's no one. He looks up at the castle and waves at the man in the window. The man waves back but then there's another man that comes up and reprimands him for waving at Stephen. They begin shooting at Stephen. The man says, don't just stand there, run! Stephen runs for his life but the gunmen continue to shoot and chase after him. Stephen heads toward the village. Stephen finds some local crowd, so he puts on his hoodie to blend in. Every Marvel character does that. They think if they put on a hoodie or wear a cap, they will be unrecognizable. The crowd starts to part, making way for Arthur Harrow. He appears to be some sort of a cult leader. You can hear the sound of glass shards as he walks on. Arthur Harrow addresses the crowd. What a beautiful day. It's like we are in heaven. Only it's not heaven, is it? It's darkness. Sometimes it hides in our very hearts. I couldn't agree more. We are here to make earth as much like heaven as possible. Translation, we will kill you and fool you into thinking that we are transporting you into heaven. Arthur Harrow asks, who would like to go first? A bearded man approaches Arthur. Arthur thanks him. You are a brave man offering your soul for judgment, wanting to serve our goddess even before she wakes. Arthur is trying to resurrect Amit and destroy the world. This is his endgame and that's what our hero needs to stop. 
Arthur puts on his crockhead cane on the bearded man's palm and the crockhead scale tattoo starts to measure. I judge you in Ahmed's name with but a fraction of her power. The scales balance perfectly and turn green. Arthur hugs the bearded man for being a good person. I think this is a farce. The first person was planted by Arthur. More gunmen approach the crowd and Stephen tries to further blend in. Arthur asks who would like to go next. An old lady approaches Arthur seeking judgment. Arthur says, will you accept the scales regardless of the outcome? She agrees. Arthur performs the scaling ritual again. The right side of the scale is heavier and the tattoo turns red this time. Arthur apologizes. The old lady is scared and she says she's been good. Arthur says he believes her, but the scales see everything. Perhaps it's something that lies ahead. This is predeterminism. No free will. Something that has also been touched upon in the Loki series. Arthur wishes the old lady could live to see the world they make. Yet... Amit has made a decision. Arthur drains the life force out of the lady as she tries to let go of Arthur's grip. She turns pale and falls dead to the ground. Arthur's men take her away. How can a person kill an old lady in broad daylight and not one person from the crowd utters a word or comes to her rescue? It's murder. What sort of brainwashed cult is this? How does someone's death not affect them? The gunman who shot at Stephen comes up to Arthur and apologizes saying there was a problem with the exchange. I knew Arthur was after to Stephen and they were Arthur's men. The gunman also informs Arthur that they were ambushed and two of their men were killed. Arthur checks with his men if they believe that the man is still around. They believe so. Arthur mutters something in ancient Egyptian. The crowd kneels except for Stephen and then the moment he realizes he kneels as well. Arthur spots Stephen in the crowd and says that he knows him. He even addresses him as a mercenary. Stephen is shocked. He denies all allegations. He says he's a gift shopper something even I used to describe him in the beginning of the pod. Steven is such an idiot to just dole out his personal information to complete strangers. Arthur requests Steven to return the scarab. Steven is more than happy to, but his other personalities are not so much in compliance. Arthur continues to strongly encourage Steven to return the scarab, but Steven's other personalities are doing everything in their power to keep it with them. They abduct Steven in front of a crowd as if it's not an abduction. No one in the crowd thinks abduction is illegal. The people in the crowd do nothing and Arthur assures them as if it were nothing. Arthur's men try to snatch away the scarab from Stephen's hand and one of them even succeeds. Stephen blacks out. When he wakes up, he sees Arthur's men lying on the ground with their skulls cracked and Stephen's hand covered in blood along with the scarab. Arthur and the bystanders stare daggers at Stephen and close in on him like an angry mob only because they see blood. Where were these people's morals when the old lady's life force was being drained in front of their eyes? We hear F. Murray Abraham's voice again. No, the idiot's back. Stephen apologizes and escapes in a cupcake delivery van. The van reads, Subwagon, Leafarung, Warn, Condito, Warren, which translates to Subcar Delivery from Confectioners. The voice says, Don't you dare drop the scarab. Stephen has no idea what he's doing and all he's concerned about is not having a driving license. 
a chase sequence ensues. Wham's Wake Me Up Before You Go Go plays on the radio. Steven thinks this has to be a dream and he's going to be killed. He's about to slam his cupcake delivery van into a delivery truck filled with poultry chicken. He presses the horn incessantly asking for a pass. I love the top angle shot of the serpentine road carved on the side of the mountain. One man shoots and manages to get on the cupcake van to get the scarab from Steven. Steven uses the cupcakes to fight him but also apologizes. What a man. Never bring a cupcake to a gunfight. The perfect cupcakes being destroyed in the fight breaks my heart. Give me that food. Give me that perfect cupcake. Another car paces up to Steven's van by the driver's side and the man is ready to take a shot. Steven blacks out and when he wakes up, the other car is nowhere by his side and he's holding a gun that he drops like a hot potato. The man's voice says, wake up Mark. If he loses the scarab, I'll kill you both. What does he mean he'll kill them both? Are Mark and Steven two different people? I thought he was suffering from disassociative identity disorder. If Konshu kills any one of them, both of them will die. This also indicates that Konshu is very selfish. He'll do whatever it takes to fulfill his want. Steven doesn't understand what's happening. Konshu yells at him about the speeding truck carrying logs approaching his van. He swerves and barely escapes. And a few moments later, his van is wedged between two other cars. All of Arthur's men have the croc scale tattoo on their arms. Arthur's men aim to shoot shoot Stephen. Stephen blacks out again. When Stephen wakes up, he realizes he's driving full speed in reverse. Stephen throws a gun at the other car chasing in front of him. The man says, did you just throw the gun? Stephen has no clue what he's doing. So the man suggests, then leave as B, Parasite. The giant cupcake atop the delivery van falls on the road. The engine stops. Steven tries to start the van, but he fails. The car chasing Steven overtakes him and comes to a screeching halt. Two men step out of the vehicle to shoot Steven. Steven puts his hand up, but fortunately some logs fall from above, destroying the cars and the men with them. Steven wakes up scared and screaming. We see a shot of Steven with three reflections, indicating he has three different personalities. He checks the restraint grip and it's intact. He laughs, thinking it was just a dream. He eats his breakfast cereal and speaks to Gus, wondering what fishes dream about. He notices that Gus, the cold fish, has grown his fin. What the fish? Stephen goes to the fish shop. Stephen is literally finding Nemo. Sorry, Gus. Later, Gators. The shop lady says she told him yesterday she doesn't have a one-fin fish like Nemo. Stephen doesn't recall visiting the store yesterday. He looks at the clock and can't believe it's five. He asks if the wall clock is right. The shop lady says the fish is wrong, the clock is wrong. Perhaps it's you that's not quite right. I wish they had used the words not right for all the sentences to end up with you are not quite right. Stephen apologizes but he's late for a date. The number of times Stephen apologizes equals to the number of times I apologize in a day. I think it's something you do when you're broken on the inside. I went zero to dark in two seconds. Stephen waits for his date at the steakhouse and no one shows up. He calls up Dylan and she informs him that it's Sunday and not Friday. He confirms it by asking the waiter, what day is today? I can't believe his phone doesn't show him the day and time because mine does. He's upset that he missed out on the date. He's really lonely and is looking for love. Stephen calls up his mother on the phone again as he throws the rose bouquet in the trash and carries the heart-shaped 
shaped chocolate box. A dejected Stephen enters his apartment. He switches on the lights and switches them off again because darkness and pain are old friends. Stephen gobbles the chocolates from the box without a care in the world. There's a rhythm to his chewing, reminiscent of a super sad person. This is me every time I feel sad. That's how we chew. Stephen accidentally drops some chocolate pieces on the floor. When he bends down to pick them up, he discovers the scratched floor hiding under the rug. Stephen removes the rug, places the table back on the scratch marks, climbs it and finds a secret stash. When he pulls the plank, we see a shot from the inside that looks like a pyramid. He extends his arm inside the stash and finds a key, probably a storage unit key, and a Motorola phone with a charger. Stephen charges the phone and looks in. There are multiple missed calls from Layla and one from Dukam. Jean-Paul Ducamp is a character from Moon Knight comic. He's about to call Layla but receives a call from her instead. Steven is startled. He's unsure if he should answer the call. Ultimately, he does. Layla is surprised to hear Mark's voice and she reacts. Oh my god, you're alive! Steven is very casual about it. Layla doesn't like that Mark is being very casual about it. She says she's been texting and calling him for months. She thought something happened to him. She wants to know where he has been all this time. This indicates that Mark has had this new identity for months since the incident. Steven reveals that he just found the phone and is trying to figure whose phone it is. Layla asks him what's with the accent. Stevie wonders who Layla thinks he is and he asks why did you call me Mark and Layla is furious. The phone is disconnected. Stephen tries calling her back, but he hears a voice calling him out. He stops and looks around his apartment. Mark tells Stephen to stop investigating because he's going to get himself in trouble. Stephen feels someone is messing with him. Stephen walks up to the bathroom, opens the door because he thinks that's where the voice is coming from. He catches his reflection in the mirror, behaving independently, shaking his head in disagreement. Stephen switches on the lights and rechecks his mirror reflection. It's him. It's fine. The lights around him start to flicker and an electric buzzing can be heard. Stephen turns to look around the apartment but the reflection doesn't turn. It continues to look at Stephen and asks him to stop looking. <laughs> Ironic. The apartment lights flicker vigorously and random things start to fall. Stephen rushes out of his apartment to the elevator. Stephen's apartment number is 502 so he lives on the fifth floor. Stephen presses the elevator button and the door opens. He enters and smashes the ground floor button incessantly. He turns and looks at his mirror reflection again. Suddenly, the elevator stops and the doors open on the third floor, but there is no one to be seen. He presses the button to close the elevator door. He presses the ground floor button again. The elevator door closes and now opens on the second floor. We can see Conchu's silhouette in the dark. He's standing in the distance with his crescent moon staff. As the lights in the corridor start to flicker, Konshu can be seen with his beak, skull and mummy wrappings. Konshu wobbles with his crescent moon staff as he approaches the elevator. He grabs the door right before it's about to close. Stephen is petrified and is clenching his knees on the elevator floor. We see an old lady instead of Konshu as she enters the elevator. The old lady thanks Stephen for stopping the elevator. Stephen explains himself that he's on the floor only because he's looking for 
his lost contact lens. Suddenly, the elevator door opens on the fifth floor. Steven is confused about what's going on and thinks it's the faulty elevator wiring. The elevator lights start to flicker again and when Steven turns, he sees Conchu standing right behind him. When the camera pans back to Steven, we see him screaming on the bus on his way to work. Here, Steven is wearing a blue jacket and not a blue shirt like he was in the previous scene. So I'm guessing some time has passed. He's confused out of his mind. He looks out of the bus. Steven gets off the bus in a hurry. He even spots his reflection for a moment in the bus window. As the bus speeds away, Steven spots Arthur Harrow inside the bus. And it dawns upon him that Arthur Harrow is real. His dream was real. Steven rushes to Tottenham Court Road Station. JB, the security guy, is watching an auto video. Steven requests JB not to let anyone dodgy enter the museum because he feels he's being followed. JB doesn't believe him and says it's a museum. He cannot stop anyone from entering as it's free. Donna arrives at the scene and asks Steven to take the boxes downstairs. JB gets a call and he says he needs to take it as it's his mom on the line. Steven needs a minute but Donna doesn't have one to spare and she needs him to do the assigned work. Steven spots Arthur Harrow in the distance inside the museum. But I couldn't spot him when I was watching. Stephen goes in the direction to check where Arthur is. Arthur sneaks up upon Stephen from behind. Arthur says, So, you really do work here. I had assumed Stephen Grant was an alias. Imagine my surprise to find you here. Stephen is shocked. He tells Ronnie that Arthur is following him. To Stephen's surprise, Ronnie has his allegiance to Arthur, donning the croc scale tattoo on his arms and chants, Praise are met. Stephen can't believe his museum people are involved with Arthur. Stephen reveals he doesn't have the scarab. And to this, Arthur responds, It doesn't belong to me either. It belongs to her. Arthur points at a painting of Amit on the pillar. Do you know Amit? Stephen says, Do I know Amit? No, not personally. Egyptian deity, right? World's first boogeyman. Arthur corrects Stephen. She was only the boogeyman for evildoers. She grew weary of having to wait for sinners to commit their crimes before punishing them. Would you wait to weed the garden till the roses were dead? Stephen is like, I wouldn't do that. Weird analogy. The context doesn't fit. How can you punish someone if they have not committed a crime? Judging someone only at the assumption that there is a possibility that they might commit some crime is insane. Arthur says, the justice of Amit surveys the whole of our lives, past, present, future. She knows what we've done. She knows what we will do. Stephen says, okay, great. Well, the books must have left that part out. As Stephen is trying to get away from Arthur, another man appears and shuts the room door. When Stephen moves in the opposite direction, a curly head woman reveals the croc scale tattoo on her arms. Stephen feels cornered. Arthur says, consider this. Had Ahmed been free, she would have prevented Hitler and the destruction he wrought. Nero, the Armenian genocide, Pol Pot, Stephen says, not nice people. Arthur says, but she was betrayed by indolent fellow gods, by even her own avatar. Stephen says, Avatar, blue people, love the film. Arthur says, by Avatar, I mean. Stephen says, you mean anime. Stephen references James Cameron's Avatar and anime Avatar Airbender. Arthur says, Stephen, stop it. Stephen is like, are you going to kill me? The light starts to flicker at that moment. Arthur says, it's maddening, isn't it? The voice in your head, relentless, forever unsatisfied. No matter how hard you try to please, it devours you until there's nothing left but a hollow shell. Arthur reveals his croc scale tattoos on his 
his arms to judge Stephen. He grabs both of Stephen's arms and Arthur says, and the more you ask for help, the more you begin to sound like the boy who cried wolf. Stephen says, I can't help you. Arthur says, I'm trying to help you. Stephen says, I saw you kill that woman in the Alps. Finally, Stephen is calling Arthur out and raising concerns. Arthur says, I only told her what millions more will soon learn. Arthur brings Stephen's arms together and places it on the crockhead cane for judgment. Do you want to know the truth? The cane moves like a pendulum. The croc scales start to weigh but never stop. Arthur looks at the scales and then at Stephen and is surprised. There's chaos in you. Either Stephen doesn't have his heart and can't be judged or Arthur's dialogue about Stephen being a hollow shell is true. The door behind Stephen opens and Stephen excuses himself from this harrowing predicament and runs. Arthur asks his men to let Stephen go. Over the exterior shot of the museum, as we see the crescent moon shining on the side, the museum lights on the inside go off. The camera moves as if something is approaching the museum. Stephen is busy with the inventory. The lights in the other part of the museum go off one by one. Stephen takes his back to leave but overhears something squealing. He turns to look and just says, bloody hell. The cleaning crew is in the next room Stephen was about to walk into. Instead, he steps in the opposite direction and inquires, hello, Donna, JB, pets allowed in the museum? Here, boy. He whistles trying to call out to the pet. He passes a giant crocodile exhibit. Stephen says, Hello, where are you, you little bugger? Stephen spots his two reflections in the mirror and passes by. Stephen moves away, but the reflections stay and spot the hellhound-type jackal moving next to the crocodile to hunt down Stephen. Stephen continues to search for the pet. He even says, I can hear you. Can you hear me? What we hear is a monster growling. Stephen moves around the museum's various rooms and spots the hellhound jackal's shadow on the wall. Stephen is shocked and can't believe his eyes, so he takes cover. We hear Arthur calling out to Stephen. Arthur says, Stephen Grant of the gift shop, give me the scarab and you won't be torn apart. What a way to threaten someone. We can see the jackal behind the statues and his eyes glowing and sniffing for Stephen. Stephen throws his bag in the opposite direction to throw the jackal off of his scent. The jackal attacks the bag. Stephen tries to escape, tiptoeing without making any noise, but he bangs into a glowing vase, about to fall. He saves it. He realizes that the jackal has spotted him, so he runs for his life. The jackal crawls on the museum walls as it chases Stephen through the corridors into the storage room. Stephen uses his work badge to open doors. The first door grants access for a moment, then denies access. The second door grants access and it's a bathroom. Stephen manages to get inside and shut the door. The jackal bangs to break open the door. One of Stephen's reflection calls out to him. It is Mark. It says, Stephen. Stephen looks around to figure who's talking. We see Stephen's many reflections in the mirror around him. He looks in the other mirror and one of his reflections separate from the others and speaks to him. So this is a side reflection of Mark in the mirror. Mark says, Stephen, I can save us, but I can't have you fighting me this time. He turns to look at the mirror behind him and it's another reflection of the same man talking to him. So it's Mark in the back mirror reflection. You need to give me control. You understand? In the background, we can see that the jackal has almost disfigured the door. Stephen says, no, what? Control of what? What are you talking about? Mark, in the back mirror reflection, says, That thing is about to break through the door. Mark, on the side mirror reflection. We're out of time. At this point, there is just one Mark in the reflection, and all the other infinite Stephen reflections have disappeared. 
Mark on the side mirror reflection says, All right, hey, listen to me. Steven responds, No, stop it, damn it. No. Steven starts hitting himself. Mark's side mirror reflection is out of focus as he tries to convince Steven to let him take control. Mark on the side mirror reflection says, Listen, look at me. Steven is not interested. No. Mark on the side mirror reflection says, Look at me. Steven says, This is not real. You're not real. Mark on the side mirror reflection says, This is real. I am real. Steven says, No, you're not real. Mark on the side mirror reflection says, Yes, Steven, you gotta give me control. It's the only way. Steven says, Oh God, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. If you notice, Steven's behavior over here is very childlike. He's trying to snap out of the situation by slapping himself, trying to pacify himself that it's not real, but also panicking that he's going to die. Mark of the side mirror reflection says, You, Steven, look at me. At this moment, the music stops and the camera tracks into Mark in the side mirror reflection, bringing him back to focus. Mark on the side mirror reflection says, You're not going to die. Let me save us. This is Stephen's moment of realization to comply with his other identity. Stephen agrees and we see Egyptian hieroglyphics glowing on the walls, now more prominent than before. The wrappings take over Stephen, but the reflection doesn't show the mummy wrappings. The jackal slams the door open and attacks Stephen mid-transformation. Cut to the corridor shot with flickering lights as we hear the brawl, the camera stealthily tracks in to move into the bathroom to show what transpired. A sink comes flying out the door and slams into the wall, making a dent. When the camera turns to the bathroom door, we see the jackal trying to flee, but gets dragged back inside. We see backshot of a man covered in mummy wrappings with a cape and a hoodie as he kicks and punches, beating the jackal mercilessly to a pulp. The beautiful bathroom is terribly damaged. Water is flowing from broken sinks in the bathroom. The man in the cape with the glowing eyes turns toward the camera, framing him in a close-up. This is the money shot. The music reaches its crescendo and the frame fades to black. The end credit sequence begins. We see a variety of things that I'm going to point out one by one. A moon crescent over a cityscape, the desert with footprints, a broken tablet with ancient Egyptian symbols, Khonshu's beak skull and his statue, other Egyptian deities, probably the Aeneid, reflection of Cairo's tower in the water that ripples into, London's Big Ben reflection in the puddle with a ripple effect, the pyramids with the moon crescent on top, bullet shells, magnifying glass, documents, a compass, a Polaroid, a red scarf, a ring fractured into three shots, Stephen's multiple reflections, a bullet hole on a piece of glass as it cracks, the beetle golden scarab as it spreads its wings, the various phases of the moon, the moon crescent on the moon knight costume with engravings, the mummy wrapping staring, a room door opening amidst the dark and is lit from the inside, a staircase leading up with falling sand grains, Various faces of Stephen, a curly-haired woman holding a red flare. An Egyptian monument's door opens and light emits from the inside. It transitions into the flickering lights of Stephen's apartment corridor, to the storage unit corridor and to the psychiatric asylum corridor as it starts to turn upside down, disorienting us. It is foreshadowing where the main protagonist will end up in the show. Arthur Harrow with his crockhead cane and Konshu in the background, the Moon Knight costume as it forms from the mummy wrappings along with the cape, hoodie and glowing eyes, the title appears, Moon Knight.
After the end credits finish, the slate reads, For more information on mental health resources near you, please visit the National Alliance on Mental Health at nami.org. I am definitely intrigued by the first episode. I want to know what happens next. I'll be covering all the episodes on the podcast. I hope you liked it. You can listen and subscribe to the Awesome Pod Mix on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music and Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. I would soon be launching Awesome Pod Mix page on Patreon and you can support me there. Thanks for listening.